Spot on the Couch would like to acknowledge that Toronto is in the Dish with One Spoon territory. The Dish with One Spoon is a treaty between the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee that bound them to share the territory and protect the land. Subsequent Indigenous nations and peoples, Europeans, and all newcomers have been invited into this treaty in the spirit of peace, friendship, and respect. The dish, or sometimes it is called the bowl, represents what is now Southern Ontario, from the Great Lakes to Quebec, and from Lake Simcoe into the United States. We all eat out of the dish, all of us that share this territory with only one spoon. That means we have to share the responsibility of ensuring the dish is never empty, which includes taking care of the land and creatures we share it with. Importantly, there are no knives at the table, representing that we must keep the peace. This treaty was made between the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee after the French and Indian War. Newcomers were then incorporated into it over the years, notably in 1764 with the Royal Proclamation. The land acknowledgement started in British Columbia, where there are no treaties at all. Its popularity has spread as an acknowledgement of Indigenous presence and assertion of sovereignty. It is used in a variety of ways, such as at the opening of events and meetings. Um, Spot on the Couch wants to acknowledge that we believe that decolonization is not a metaphor, as the scholars Eve Tuck and Kay Yang have stated before. Um, to quote their article, uh, decolonization offers a different perspective to human and civil rights-based approaches to justice, an unsettling one rather than a complementary one. Decolonization is not an and, it is an elsewhere. Um, Spot on the Couch is... Um, committed to working through these ideas of how decolonization can um, become more than a metaphor and something that we work through as we um, move through the world and are working in social justice circles. Yeah, and on top of that, we want to also acknowledge that land acknowledgements have become a bit of a performative uh, aspect of like ceremonies and event planning um, and activism. So we just want to make sure that we acknowledge um, the importance of them and and the purpose of them. Again, like we said earlier, it's to reflect on and be reminded that we are on um, traditional territories um, and indigenous land. Um, and furthermore, it's really important to know during land acknowledgments, it's a like I said, it's a moment of reflection. So you should stop what you're doing and actually take the time to think about what is being said and think about the space that you're taking up. Welcome to Spot on the Couch, a show about navigating the rapidly changing world around us while focusing on important cultural, political, and social moments. In a world where you can often feel out of place, there's always a spot for you here. On On our couch. couch! I'm Yaz. I'm Tat. And I'm Sav. So let's get into it. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Sorry we've been gone for a while. <laughs> a long time. Yeah, we um, we were away. School started for all of us, and Ty went to El Salvador to see her grandma and was gone for two weeks, so we've kind of been, like, in a weird limbo space. But hopefully you'll still stick with us now that we're back. Thanks for hanging out. So for today's episode, we want to talk about... Uh, problematizing the wilderness and the outdoors um, and kind of unpacking that space in general um, whether it's about the barriers the racialization all those different access points to the wilderness it's something that we were really thinking about especially um, when we went on our little camping excursion we went to Lake Superior Provincial Park which is like almost nine hours up north 
just past Sault Ste. Marie and before Wawa, which was, it's beautiful up there, but it was just interesting the way that, like, socially it just looks so different. And so we got to talking about that with our good friend Jenny Dallin, who mm-hmm. came on this camping trip with us, who's actually the whole reason we went. Yeah. Which is sick. Thanks, Jenny. Um, but, um, yeah, do you want to say more about it, guys? Yeah, Jenny is a certified interpretive naturalist and hiking guide in northern Ontario in the Canadian Rocky Mountains, and she's been doing this for five years. And, yeah, we're really happy that she's here to talk with us. I think she has a lot of knowledge um, in practice with being in the outdoors. So, yeah, thank you. Welcome, Jenny. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I'm Jenny. Hey. I've been working as an interpretive naturalist, which is kind of a weird title. Yeah, for five years, just in different national provincial parks. Um, essentially, what an interpreter is, is through like being a hiking guide and giving presentations, I try to interpret the landscape to guests and visitors of the natural spaces that I'm working in um, to help them form meaningful connections to it or to give them a bit of information about um, the ecological uh, parts of the spaces that they're in. And hopefully, in the end, they'll um, yeah feel more connected to it. How did you get into that? <laughs> um, I got into it when I was eighteen. It was uh, through my family and I had already had spent like a lot of time when I um, was a kid camping and um, being in provincial parks. I'm lucky because my dad grew up um, in northern Ontario, so I spent a lot of time up there. Um, and so I was always really interested in like the whole park system. And so I just got a job, kind of a student job, right out of high school. Um, and then I kind of worked my way up and I've been working, you know, pretty much every summer since then, uh, doing that. Cool. Um, let's talk about the camping trip. Let's talk about the camping trip. let's talk about the camping trip first. (laughs) Good idea. First of all, probably one of the best camping trips I've been on. Yeah, for real. It was so beautiful. It was fun, eh? It was so fun. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think what was really interesting, and I think me and Yaz were, like, really, like, whoa, by the demographics that we... Uh, came across like mm-hmm. obviously for you it's you're more uh, familiar with it because you've made this trip so much from um Woodstock near London mm-hmm. up to um Lake Superior for work over the summer mm-hmm. and the fall that you did work there is just seeing the difference in demographics like I was so somebody who's grown up in the GTA all my life and so has yeah it's like I was as soon as we got like four and a half hours out of like the GTA like every 30 kilometers was a different reservation. Then when we got to Lake Superior Provincial Park, like, all the campers were white. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a reservation on the top, and there's a re- yeah. reservation Bordering on the bottom. the park. The park itself, like, spans, yeah. like, 65 kilometers of the highway. Mm-hmm. Just right north of it, there's a reservation just right south. Yeah. 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 And I think me and Yaz were the only people of color that I saw. So something I actually noticed and I thought was really interesting is, so, like, Jenny... Um, was there for a wedding and so the first two nights we we camped together overnight and the last night it was just Sav and I um, and something I haven't even like brought up with either of you but I was just thinking about which was really interesting but I remember when we were talking to um, some of like Jenny's friends there mm-hmm. it was really interesting because when we were like oh yeah like this is gonna be Sav and I then the last night they're like are you guys okay do you need us to check in on yeah. you and in my head I was like we're good like I mean I don't camp that much yeah but I was like I think we're fine yeah and so I was just like I was like I'm, I'm, I'm fine I'm done for like, like four Sav camps yeah. a lot yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. I was like in the moment I was like okay no harm no foul but at the same time I was thinking about like would they have said that if we were white? You know what I right. mean? Like, yeah. that's just something, for example. Oh, yeah, you're I was, totally like, right. Unpacking. I've meant to bring it up, like, mm-hmm. being like, isn't that kind of funny? But I, I forgot yeah. to, but I was just thinking about it right now. That is funny. But yeah, it's just interesting to see, like, um, 
it was it was just really I think it was an important trip for me. I I don't know, I don't want to speak on your behalf, but I thought it was very um, important because I'd never been that far north, and I think part of that also I've always felt this way about camping. Um, I love it. I really enjoy it. But at the same time, I feel like I don't have enough knowledge to like be like I'm an outdoors person or I'm mm-hmm. a camper right. and stuff like that. And I think this felt like a way for me to feel more connected to that. But I was also thinking about how, at least in my experience, and I don't know about yours, but a lot of like my friends who are racialized like don't interact no, don't with camp. like the yeah. wild or with right. national parks, provincial parks. Like it's something that feels very like not the space for like us and I don't and that's something we kind of want to unpack today and think about like why it doesn't feel necessarily like a welcoming space right yeah Mm -hmm. um I can speak to my history with the outdoors and camping a little bit like my dad for some reason like really loves not for some reason but he loves the outdoors and so none of my family really goes camping like my mom hates it she's like if I'm not in a hotel like what am I doing living in my house yeah it is and so <laughs> but my dad loves it like he loves like the grunginess and the dirtiness of it he's like yeah we're gonna do a 20 kilometer bike ride through Algonquin and like we'll camp through the whole time like he's that kind of a guy but in when I was younger I loved camping but I hated going camping because I just knew that these white people were watching us all the time and it was just such a it was um it was this experience I was talking to you guys before we started recording um I think his name is E.B. Dubois the the scholar talks about this this two-ness of being a racialized person and so like yeah I'm having fun with my dad I'm having this experience but I also know that so many people are looking at us because like we're like these colored people camping like all these mm-hmm. white families would literally like just stop and watch us like yeah. put up our tent mm-hmm. and like people would come by and they're like hey do you need help bud and my dad was like i've got this like i'm fine i'm fine they're like are you sure like you look can-. it was just so weird like i just felt like i wasn't supposed to be there yeah. yeah like all the time and i was like dad like we don't have to and i kind of i know it broke his heart a little bit because i'm like dad can we just stop going camping not because i didn't enjoy it mm-hmm. but i just I just hated that feeling of, like, being watched, and it always felt like I was transgressing on space that wasn't mine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I agree. Like, I felt like the wilderness didn't belong to us, and we shouldn't be there, Mm -hmm. and the way that, like, now I don't care. My dad has thick skin, and I think I picked that up from him, but, like, now I'm like, whatever, like, I'm doing this, I'm camping, like, if you want to stare at me like I'm an animal in a zoo, you can. Like, that's your problem. Yeah. But I remember being, like, eight or nine, and I was like, dad they're all watching like oh like can you set up the tent faster like I I hated um camp like semi-private campgrounds which like most provincial parks are set up like you can see um the the campsites across from you and beside you like Like, camping yeah like car camping like people can see you and you can see them and so I was always aware that I was being watched and that my dad was being watched and like I just felt like I wasn't supposed to be in the wilderness Mm -hmm. and so like we I always felt like we were doing something wrong and we get caught right yeah and like um I remember, like, and now I, I looking back, because we were having that conversation about the park wardens, which we'll bring up later, but, like, park wardens would come over to me and my dad, just, like, this eight-year-old kid, and my dad's, like, this goofy-looking, like, really nice brown guy, and, like, mm-hmm. like they just come up and check up on us constantly. Like, we there was no alcohol or, like, weed right. or cigarettes at our campground. It was just, like, this guy and his kid, and, like, constantly checking up on us, and I hated that so much. Like, mm-hmm. every time we went camping, it just felt like we were doing something wrong. Right? Yeah. And then, like, everybody else was just allowed to live like all the white families were just chilling yeah I think like similarly I think it's that like idea of feeling so visible because yeah. it, it's become this 
and and it's not by accident to like become this white space Mm -hmm. and I even felt that on our group camping trip to Kill Bear when we were car camping like we were playing music we were like goofing around it was just like a group of friends but we were like there with like a very diverse group Mm -hmm. like we were all like from different places like whatever but we had like we were also racialized mixed whatever Mm -hmm. anyways the point was is I felt like even then there's also the issue of, like, us being young and, like, a bit rowdy, whatever. But, like, <laughs> and drunk and, yeah. Yeah, and playing, like, music. Totally. But I also, I always feel, like, even on that experience, like, I still felt more visible because I knew, like, I was there, Sal was there, Tat was there, Angel, Angel was, was there. there. You know what I right. mean? And like all it was racialized people. Yeah, and I was, like, it's not just us being, like, drunk or, like, like just having fun as like young people there's also the element of like are we being like now rowdy colored yeah. people you know what yeah. I mean? and that's like that was my anxiety on that trip of like okay like i definitely felt that too i was there I mean? with you like i yeah. was just like how it wasn't something that stopped me from living but it was like in the back, back of, of my head, head throughout that entire trip being like because uh, like we came across like a warden as well and i was like really anxious that like oh like and i yeah. think we came across him twice and i was just like oh okay like you know mm-hmm. so anyways that I'm, extra care yeah like, yeah like like for like a lot of people it seems like go to like go camping especially a lot of white people and white families go camping to like this idea of getting away and invisibility but i like like yaz was saying that like i feel hyper visible when I'm yeah in that for sure right. like i don't feel like i'm really getting away i feel like there's just more space to see me clearly. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Which is yeah. interesting. Like, now I don't care because I, I love those experiences so much. And obviously, I to an extent, I do care because I'm always aware of it. But I'm able to untangle that sort of feeling. But as a kid, like, it was – I there was nothing that I was more excited but dreadful of than going on trips with my family, specifically, like, trips to things like camping. Like, mm-hmm. up north. Or, like, or or like road trips. Areas yeah. That, yeah. It was, like, literally the most... Uh, and I, I didn't have the words to sort of sure. um, ex- describe that experience, but it was just so nerve-wracking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, every time my dad would interact with people, like, at the... You know when you go in, the Welcome Center? And I was, like... Yeah. I, my heart would be racing, and, like, I, I never understood that until now, like, why mm. I was, because I knew we were different, I knew we were being watched, and f- to some extent, I felt like we weren't supposed to be there, and yet we were. Right, mm-hmm. and yeah. so then it's the question of, like, when did the outdoors mm-hmm. become such a white space? Like, yeah. why is it so white? And mm-hmm. it's tied to a lot of yeah history, yeah, yeah. Um, especially in the West, because the concept of the wilderness really is a Western concept, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, this whole final frontier, like, moving... Um, like further west and going further north like away from the cities and into the spaces that are unclaimed so to speak so to speak Um, obviously they were what is that word terra nullius i don't know there's that that term um um when a lot of um colonists came to the americas um they used this latin term called terra nullius and basically that meant um i think it meant like un uninhabited land or like land for the taking right um which is so untrue because indigenous peoples and complex civilizations had existed for thousands of years thousands of years mm-hmm. this land was this yeah, land was lived sure. on cultivated um hosted so many different people and civilizations but all of a sudden it was this empty space to be conquered because certain bodies were marked as and erased yeah and erased marked yeah. as um invaluable and unimportant and then systemically erased Mm -hmm. so i think that's what we kind of want to start to get into um 
and that's something we've been talking about a lot with Jenny and like our own personal conversations um is this how our notions and our ideas of the wilderness in the western context is such a um is such a reflection and a repetition of colonial practices right so we were going to talk a little bit I think about like wilderness as a western concept and how it kind of became a thing for people to go out into the woods and you know enjoy their time there and the wilderness being this pristine place Mm -hmm. of kind of respite from the city life specifically for a specific type of person and that person being um somebody who embodies whiteness and able-bodied able-bodiedness and um heterosexuality and like cisgenderedness like right yeah you know like think of your classic wilderness man mm-hmm. yeah exactly right. yeah. with like man the versus beard wild. and the flannel <laughs> and the but this is all kind of started if you think about it back in the states when john muir's time was mm-hmm. you know all up and happening mm-hmm. um but john muir was really like who pitched to the states that like hey guys like you are kind of getting to the point the people in the cities that you're over civilized almost you know you're becoming too structured you're becoming too um invested in industry um it's time to move west like go to the wilderness that's going to awaken your soul and make you feel calm and pure and like in touch with your authentic self Right. John Weir was pitching this to the white people in the cities and the industrial centers. Which is, like, very interesting just because, like, with the history of colonialism mm-hmm. for so long, it's, like, you're, like, indigenous people or, like, people of color who are there, it's, like, you're uncivilized, you're savage, all these things. Wilderness it's just, like, equals danger. Yeah, right? and, like, you're, because you are one with the wilderness or one with nature, it's, like... Less civilized. You yeah, are less civilized. Exactly. So it's interesting how that... Once it was kind of in flow, um, like, colonialism was, like, happening, and we were, mm-hmm. like... You had this sort of um, Western the expansion. Colony. You had yeah. the colonies. Yeah. Um, it was like, okay, now that we have established ourselves as a civilized place, as a colony, let's go and adventure. Like, let's go out. Right. You know? Like, let's go uncivilize ourselves again so we can adventure and then conquer more yeah mm-hmm. like conquer this other untouched wilderness and it's like, like so colonial yeah. and de-stress but like the nature of that is this conquerors pathology it's like let's go and climb that mountain and be the only one up there and yeah. Yeah. say like i did that and this is mine i was the only one there mm-hmm. um, which is such a what myth. are those like why are we so inclined to do things like that you know like why is that such an obsession is mm-hmm. to like be in these spaces that we believe are just for us mm-hmm. and yeah. that we're the first ones. Yeah. Yeah. And that you can see that even with like nature documentaries and nature or natural media outlets, mm-hmm. the whole like fixation on like untouched people, untouched places, like that whole, like, yeah, the whole thing, you know what I mean? Like right. you, can, I, you can think about all the different corners of the world yeah you know? yeah exactly yeah. we're still very much living in that in that time exactly for sure um but anyways back to that like and the irony is it's they weren't untouched at all oh of exactly yeah. and it's just so interesting except just untouched by white people yeah. <laughs> exactly mm-hmm. and it's just so interesting how you can pick and choose what to remember and forget when it comes to these spaces yes like um and then just like that sort of um entitlement that comes to to being in these spaces. So when you're like, what about indigenous histories and black histories, like especially a lot of, and like um, Jenny, when we were talking about this episode through the planning phase, like you were talking about how there were so many Chinese indentured laborers who literally 
did that sort of westward expansion yeah, through built the highways who right? built the highways and who built the railways the railway, yeah. Yeah. through um what was when they did like the dynamite mm-hmm. um sort of blasting mm-hmm. uh, across all this to create the trans canada yeah to create the trans canada highway yeah. yeah yeah and then the railway as well like those those are racialized bodies in these spaces making that same sort of journey that was idolized by these white men of privilege but it looks so different right and the history attached to it was so different and it cost them so much mm-hmm. versus like for um uh, there's like I was talking to somebody else and when we went to Lake Superior we saw the group of seven sort of remember there was like oh, yeah. this sort of um, tribute to the group of seven because like they went to all of the major national parks especially the ones that hit the trans Canada highway, highway. Um, and so I was talking to um, somebody about that who is in like who is a scholar at U of T and they were telling me that that was purposeful and that that was another tool of colonization to have these artists paint the Canadian landscape along the Trans-Canada Highway to sort of remake it in the white colonial European imaginary. And so I was like, whoa. Like, I didn't even... even These paintings are beautiful. You know what I mean? They idolize the Canadian landscape, what we call Canada now, the Canadian landscape in such an interesting way. And they're they're preserved for time immemorial and, like sort of like these representations of Canadian wilderness, like these idolizations, but that itself is a tool of colonialism. Right. Okay, so one question that, again, we've talked about personally, kind mm-hmm. of, but I think it would be really important, um, would be how did you, Jenny, um, as like a white person going into this space in which is welcoming to you, how did you start problematizing the issues going on within the idea of like the wild and on campgrounds and in national parks and provincial parks like how did you start recognizing this for yourself like how did yeah yeah it's a good question (laughs) um well because I grew up in southern Ontario Mm -hmm. my town is also a very white town Mm -hmm. what's that what's that (laughs) um (laughs) and uh like I said I think earlier my I spend a lot of time up north, um, mm-hmm. which is a lot of white people. If they're not indigenous, they're usually white. Yeah. And um, so me like going up there felt completely natural. And if anything, me going up north actually felt like I was almost like reclaiming a part of my identity because my dad's from up north. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was really into like camping and um, fishing and that kind of life. And so it was like, it just felt like, oh, like I'm reconnecting with like my dad, you know, like this is like a part of me in a way that I felt like I never really got in Southern Ontario. So it was weirdly cultural for me, like this part of my identity. Um, but at the same time, uh, I don't think I really, really recognized um, how white the space was until I got into university and I moved to Toronto. Because mm-hmm. coming from like a primarily white town um, and city, like, and you're 18 and you're kind of fucking stupid, like you don't really understand the world, you don't understand that the spaces that you've been occupying um, really aren't a good reflection of like what you're actually um, living. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess like that's like the first kind of wave. But I also remember being like working in parks because um, Ontario Parks is like so Lake Superior Provincial Park is part of a park system that encompasses all of Ontario, Ontario Parks, um, and a lot of like the legislation and their um, protocols like they're the system wide. So they you know are relevant to parks that are in Southern Ontario, Northern Ontario, whatever. Um, and one of the big campaigns was trying to get diversity in the students applying for jobs. Not many people know this, but there's like some freaking awesome 
I sounded like such a mom when I said freaking awesome. <laughs> there's like some freaking some awesome. freaking awesome job opportunities. No, but there are like, there's some really great like student jobs where you can literally go up north and work in a park for, you know, two months or four months. There's different contracts, full-time work, student work, but you like your accommodation is pretty much like maybe a hundred dollars a month. Like it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And you get paid like full-time hours and it's like sick. Like yeah. anybody can apply in Ontario. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but um, but basically what they found though is it was just white people applying. It was people who had families that always camped and people who were either from Southern Ontario or from Northern Ontario communities that like are really close to parks. And so they were the only jobs available. Yeah. Um, and so I remember um, hearing about these campaigns saying like, how are we supposed to get people and they were really targeting Toronto and, like, yeah. the GTA because that's where the majority of POCs, like, are in Ontario. And cities, And yeah. cities, yeah, like, metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like, how are we going to get these people out? Um, and so then it became an issue of um, the interest. So it's, mm-hmm. like, not only um, should, is there just, like, a lack of diversity and, like, maybe they just don't know about the opportunity, but then it's, like, no one really cares about the opportunity and why is that Mm -hmm. and so then I started kind of getting curious about that like let's dig deeper really like why is it that people aren't um like coming towards these beautiful spaces these places that my whole life like had been revered and that I'm like they're the best in the world like you Mm -hmm. hear how much I talk about like superior yeah um and it turns out to be (laughs) (laughs) it turns out to be like a really deep deeply seated problem yeah not problem but um issue like um there's a lot of complex reasons Mm -hmm. um and I think partially, and we were talking about this a little bit, is it's kind of a privilege to view um, going into the woods and like camping and being kind of in that uncomfortable state um, where you do have to cook your own food over a fire, you like sleep on the ground, maybe you wake up wet, like mm-hmm. it rained last night, like it's not like necessarily like comfy. Mm-hmm. It's a privilege to view that as like a fun thing. Yeah. And to view that as something that is an escape from your daily life. I mean, I have friends that like aren't. Um, even like from the city people like from Woodstock that are like why would I go camping like Mm -hmm. you know it's true it's not necessarily a luxury but especially for people who work especially hard to have like the basic comforts of life that people like you know me Mm -hmm. um, take for granted granted. yeah Yeah. especially like we were talking about earlier like for racialized people and like immigrant people if like you're coming from like a place of discomfort and you've found like you were saying like a place of comfort now it's like why would I want to go back mm-hmm. to that existence? You know, like, that doesn't feel like a privilege. That feels like more of, like, something you don't want to experience again. You know what I mean? Like, if you've had those experiences. Yeah, and there just, like, are so many mentalities. Like, my mom grew up in a small city in Punjab, India, but, like, she never had an especially, like, tough sort of experience with the wilderness, but there's just a different mentality because people know how hard things can be and so like that's always in the back of your mind and so you're like why would I make them hard for myself like yeah. you were saying yeah and if, yeah. if it's been set up for years as like systemically becoming this like white space or viewed as this white space it's again like another barrier of like mm-hmm. why would I want to put myself there it's yeah. even more uncomfortable yeah exactly yeah. I felt like it was more work to go cam- like emotional work to go camping with my dad than it would have been just to like sit and like have that long weekend at home because mm-hmm. as much fun as it was like biking and setting up the tent and hiking for days and like cooking your own food just I, the the threat of being watched like surveillance like being surveilled in this space was just so much more exhausting yeah and even my parents made a joke when I was like yeah we're going like eight and a half hours like north they're like that's the same drive to Chicago why would you go north like <laughs> and it's just like interesting because like, Chicago's great yeah <laughs> it's a great place to be but it's interesting that like it's true like 
it's not that people are unwilling to travel those distances or road trip those distances. It's more like, why would I go to these spaces that I don't feel comfortable mm-hmm. or I don't feel welcome or I don't feel knowledgeable? But it's also, like, the way that um, the Belgian is pitched to, like, yeah. everybody. Yeah. It's, like, like we were talking about um, outdoor brands like Mac and REI and um, Patagonia. Like, actually, mm-hmm. Mac and Patagonia are, like, pretty great ethical companies in my opinion, but yeah. they um, historically like place uh, companies like Mac and Patagonia. Like usually, the people in their ads are you know white and able-bodied and cisgender and um, beautiful. They're like these beautiful like yeah, Nordic-looking like, like fit like and yeah. super fit and just like and you. And look, I'm just like okay, I guess I'm staying home and I'm not wearing a vest. Like, and, like, look like me. <laughs> buying a hiking what bag. The heck? Yeah. yeah. And then also, I think. There's, this is maybe a little bit of a side point, but, like, there's also this um, whole, like, culture of, like, these, like, crazy equipments that you need mm-hmm. to go into exactly. the woods. It's like, expensive. You need, like, your Nalgene that's, like, or your Hydro Flats that's, like, 50 bucks, and you need, like, your <laughs> neon backpack and, like, your water filter that's, like, and it's, like, all of these things that, like, genuinely, okay, like, you don't actually need these things. Mm-hmm. Like, you can make it out there if you just have the simple stuff, mm-hmm. but um, it is kind of, like, this very expensive... Uh, luxury um, experience sport that it yeah. kind of has become um, mm-hmm. and it doesn't need to be like that but also if you're somebody that has never gone camping before and then the ads that you're seeing are, so the, are ones where they're one white people but two they're people um, who have all of this like high-tech stuff because There's that's so what brands are selling privilege. it's yeah. classed yeah. you know like it's it's about okay well I guess I can't go camping without spending $400 on all this equipment first literally yeah. which is really not true but it feels like that's mm-hmm. the truth yeah. and I, it's scary otherwise because yeah. there's bears mm-hmm. you know yeah, I want to sure. like hike the PCT <laughs> at some point so I was looking for like a single person bag to put in my my hiking bag like my, my travel pack and like single I, person tent yeah, yeah single person tent that like just I won't die in, you know? Like, it's easy to set up, and, like, there's, like, some sort of, like, heat-containing element. I don't know the science behind tent making. And the cheapest I could find... No. What? (laughs) What's wrong with you, Sav? You didn't take your scientific tent-making science class? (laughs) Screw you. I held one last week. (laughs) No, and, like, the cheapest one I could find was, like, $350. Yeah. Like, a piece of tarp that's supposed to, like, house one person... Like, is so expensive. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. They don't have to be, but, like, as soon as you type in, like, one person backpacking tent on, like, Mech, it's, like, the cheapest one is $300. Yeah. Because it's, it's a whole industry, right? Exactly. Like it's... And it's an industry for certain people. It's mm-hmm. geared towards certain people. Yeah. You have to be able to have the, like Jenny was saying and Yaz was saying, you have to be able to have the privilege to be like, okay, I'm taking two weeks off of work to spend $600 on all this equipment to, like, sit on a rock in the woods. Like, if you pitch that to somebody who just, like, like works, like, factory hours. I'm, like, thinking of my family, my immigrant yeah. family. Like, factory hours, like, five days a week. They're just like, what the heck? No, I'm going to Niagara Falls and staying in a hotel. And then, so that brings us back to this sort of, like, colonial mindset of who has a right to what space, mm-hmm. right? Um, when wilderness is problematic, Problematized. I hope I'm saying that right. Pro- problematized. Problematized. problematized? Yeah. Yeah, you you when can. wilderness is problematized, um, <laughs> it, it becomes something that has to do with savagery and uncivilization, and obviously, like indigenous bodies and black bodies and brown bodies are to uh, carry the brunt of that sort of um, historical and sociological way of being. But as soon as it's something that's cool and fun and interesting and like this sort of adventure, like. It's mm. it's like open season for white people, and so mm-hmm. obviously you would have this sort. You would want to 
if these are the social histories and like social understandings of the wilderness in regards to your racial place in the world you would distance yourself from it do you know what i mean like i think a big thing and earlier i mentioned like my mom like hates the idea of the wilderness is because she grew up in the british school system in india and like so like the highest sort of sense of like the self-regarding society is being exceptionally civilized exceptionally civilized in the european sense in the western sense which means being as far from the things that would mark a brown body as uncivilized as uncultured as quote-unquote savage and so of course she wouldn't ever want to touch something that's so Mm -hmm. like woodsy do you know what i mean yeah Yeah. like that idea Mm -hmm. yeah and like that's kind of what um like the author polica writes in his book race and nature um he's talking about how like for white people to go into the woods, like John Muir, they're almost uncivilizing themselves, right? They're taking themselves out of like city environments and they have the license, like they decide, okay, we're gonna become uncivilized. Mm-hmm. But like, it's the opposite of the truth mm-hmm. for, yeah, like why would you want people. to? We have the privilege of being able to like, think that's a luxury, mm-hmm. which is insane, but it's the way that it, Because you'll never presented. lose this category of whiteness that marks you as like yeah. this benchmark, this, this um, like the apex of, quote-unquote civilization that has been made by like colonial ways of knowing the world mm-hmm. like you will always be white and you will always be civilized so why not have fun with it because yeah. you can always return right but yeah. once you you as a racialized body once you step outside of that performance of acclimating to whiteness it's over do you know mm-hmm. what i mean like mm-hmm. you're, something's yeah. broken yeah something's broken i feel like the narrative even switches which is really interesting within a lot of like at least in my experience with, like, racialized communities, is, like, okay, if you want to start camping or you start wanting to go to, like, these wilderness spaces, then people are, like, why are you trying to act white? Why are you trying to involve yes. yourself in that stuff? Like, that, like, what are you doing? Like, that's that's Which weird. Is, mm, that Which is, is like, weird. it's, like, this, and, like, that, of course, people, white people will think that, too, but it's also an issue within these colored communities because it's, like, now it doesn't feel like a space for you, but now you're also, like, it's part of, like, again, like, the systems of colonialism. It's, like, why would you want to go there? Like, what? It's outside of your reach. Yeah, it's yeah. outside of your, so like, your place in society. Yeah, which is really interesting. So interesting. I think I was telling you, yeah, I was, like, I was talking to a friend, and I was, like, we got back from Lake Superior. I was, like, man, I just want to go, like, live on a, a freaking rock on the lake. Like, that's what I do. And so she was, like, oh, so you're, like, a white hick now? This is, like, a racialized person? I was, like, that's so interesting. Because, mm-hmm. like, you're also friends with this person, Jenny, and if you were, like, Oh man, I want to go to Lake Superior. She'd be like, "Yo, true, true, yeah. <laughs> like makes sense." But it's cool for me, I yeah. guess. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, it's just that narrative of this space is not for me. Yeah. Because of all these histories, like you were talking about. Exactly. I think there's this idea when you go camping or into the wilderness that you, the idea of untouchedness and like separation from like the so from the social order and history, but we all we forget how these spaces are so embedded with histories with mm-hmm. fraught histories with histories that contradict e- each other especially when it comes to colonization right like if you if you think about it and you think about it from a decolonial lens like there is this park here because it is no longer a space where indigenous people can roam freely like that's just the way that it is do you know yeah. what i mean like 
and there's a history to that, right? It's not like, okay, there's pictographs and now there's this nice provincial park and let's go camping and like right. let's go on a tour. Like that isn't it's not a neutral thing. There's thing meanings are being made all the time and right. we yeah. don't always have control over it, but I think we have to recognize that. Yeah, and yeah. I think something weird discussing before this is like we all acknowledge that none of us are indigenous to this land right we're We're all settlers yeah Yeah. and like the way we are settlers is different for each of our histories um but the point is is none of us are indigenous and therefore i think we have responsibility as settlers and i think people of color have a responsibility even if you did not come here by choice if we are staying here i think you have a responsibility to learn about indigenous histories and indigenous cultures and like do your part i think something that they're talking about at i went to um another shirt day event in the city that's talking about the histories of uh, uh residential schools and acknowledging like every child matters every indigenous child who went through that had a voice had a life mm-hmm. and yet it's so glossed over and the last one was obviously in 1996 that was the last time a year before was, we were born yeah mm-hmm. that's 23 years ago right that's not that long ago, yeah. right? And it's important that non-Indigenous people start learning for themselves about these histories because there's also the issue of putting the onus on people to like tell their own histories and educate and do right. that emotional labor, right? So I think it's important that like we are talking about this but also acknowledging that we don't have the full context, we don't have the full history, and, like, we're not trying to talk on behalf of people. But I think it is important that we are bringing this to light because the onus shouldn't always be on Indigenous people to educate about Indigenous histories and the issues going on. I but agree. That's a really good point. So I just wanted to make that really clear, that we totally understand our positionality in all mm-hmm. of these issues. Like, And we're not trying to speak on that, but we also want to do our part in talking about this. And trying to acknowledge. And acknowledge these things, right? So It just brings it back to that that understanding of decolonization uh, being more than a metaphor that we were talking about that goes back to that E-Tuck article and that Yang article that um, we encourage everybody to read that we mentioned in our um, attempt at a less um, performative land acknowledgement is that you these histories are active, mm-hmm. and so you are always complicit. You are always complicit, and um, no matter what you do, you do something, you don't do something, it's doing something. Exactly. And that sounds very redundant. But um, So I went to this professor, and basically I was just frustrated with the idea that um, so much equity work is being done, specifically talking about this idea of decolonization not being a metaphor, but it seems unproductive, and it seems to be going in circles, and so many people are just, they're content with doing nothing. And so, and then they responded by saying doing nothing is doing something, and not to be, like, very philosophical about it, but, like, mm-hmm. that means, like, no matter what you are choosing or choosing not to do, it's still an active stance. You don't get to opt out. Mm-hmm. As a settler on this land, you don't get to opt out. You are a part of the process, the violent process of colonialism, if you like it or not. And it, yes, some some of our families are here, not by choice. Not by choice, but we are here. Do you know what I mean? And so there's there's some work to be done with that notion. Yeah, it's it's important to just remember again. Like I think we've talked about this before, but in issues of oppression, uh, and and combating white supremacy, all of these, all of these marginalized 
bodies are connected and you can't have black liberation without having indigenous liberation you can't have like any type of liberation without all of us being liberated Mm -hmm. and and it's something just to remember in your activism in the work that you're doing it's like you have to make sure you're centering um these issues Mm -hmm. because otherwise it's not a full story of liberation you know i mean it's not a full it's not holistic at all it was so interesting because all three of us were at the climate march recently and um Mm -hmm. i i was mostly just there for the rally part with yaz and um i a lot of the speakers during the rally were indigenous women or femme identifying people um and they were talking about these harrowing accounts of environmental racism and these are the communities that are that are the first sort of um people to face the consequences of environmental degradation Mm -hmm. as a result of climate change and environmental injustice as it has always been Mm -hmm. like uh, colonization was environmental racism it stems from that like there is no sort of um climate change justice that is holistic and um, effective without sort of tackling colonial ideologies and white supremacist issues. But I remember we were standing there and these women were speaking and there was some an activist and uh, a, a woman from Grassy Narrows Reservation right. and she was just talking about um, just the, the horrible mercury sort of po- mercury poisoning of her people and how so many children are born with these kind of birth defects and because of mercury poisoning, so many people suffer from mental health issues and end up taking their own lives out, like, and there's nothing that's really being done about it and the government just doesn't care. And there was these these white women near us and they were just like, shut up, like, let's go on the march. Yeah. And it happened every, like, there was a woman, an indigenous woman from Tibet, and she was talking about how, like, the Chinese government is sort of, like, exploiting the land in Tibet. And it's, it's very dangerous not just for the people of tibet obviously they they suffer the consequences first but for the environment and the world mm-hmm. as and a whole because like she talked about how like if you think about it tibet is considered like the roof of the planet mm-hmm. um and so there's so much like development going on there that's polluting the atmosphere that's sort of disrupting so many like natural uh, ecological patterns and so like people were just so upset and i'm like okay you want to march for the climate but yeah you can't even hear these people out yeah I and think, it was yeah it just comes back to what you were just saying right now yeah yeah i think with that instance it was like the the march was running behind the quote-unquote schedule and people were getting frustrated but i think again it's like remembering why you're there. why you're there like if you have a timeline on this, again, that's an issue. And I, like, for example, Sav and I had to leave early, but don't make this about you. You know what I mean? Don't like, make this about you getting to walk in the parade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't make this about, like, yeah, like you being able to be like, I was there. Like, you have to remember why you're there. Like, if it's running behind schedule, there's a reason for that. You need to let the people who are there to speak speak because mm-hmm. so often they're not allowed to speak. They aren't given the access to be heard so it's just like yeah it's just remembering why you're doing something and why you're doing your activism and making sure and well that goes back to the whole point of what decolonization is not a metaphor means you know yeah Mm -hmm. it's not being performative like you have to actually you know ingrain those values if you're gonna say that you Mm -hmm. care about them yeah exactly and it also goes back to our um conversation how we started this sort of um 
episode about like who is allowed in what space and which bodies are naturalized in one space in what space like obviously these these quote like these white women thought that they had more of a right to sort of talk and um, be in the front lines of environmental issues than these activists these indigenous activists and that was so troubling right do mm-hmm. you like they're like they were annoyed that these people are voicing their concerns about the environment but because it's behind schedule because it's, it's behind like, schedule but obviously yeah. like they need their instagram picture they mm-hmm. need they need the instagram picture with the poster they need to be in the march and like mm-hmm. it's who gets to care about the environment who gets to belong in these spaces of wild uh, wilderness and like naturalness mm-hmm. like those kind of ideas yeah earlier when we were talking jen you said you had um a good example or a good story of a mountain. Oh yeah, that, like, really this goes way back to what we were talking about from That's the beginning. Okay. Yeah, but um, yeah, we were talking a little bit about um, this history is being erased, and uh, for those of you who don't know, um, there's an interesting story I learned when I was working out west in the Rockies. Um, so there's a mountain by Canmore called Haling. Um, it's a really like a lot of people climb it. It's not that hard of a mountain to climb now. Um, but back in the early 1900s, when they were building the Canadian Pacific Railway, uh, most of the workers on that railway were Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically, I think the story goes like this. Uh, there was a Chinese man um, by the name of Haling who uh, bet his friends like one morning that he could climb that unnamed peak out in the distance um, within like five hours or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, I promise I can do it. I'm going to do it. And so the guy's like, okay, sure. If you do it, I'll give you five bucks. Mm-hmm. Like, which I guess was a lot of money back then. Yeah. yeah. Um, just like, you know, having fun. And so the guy does it. He like climbs the peak. He comes back. He goes to his friend and says, hey, like, I did it. I climbed the peak. And then his friend's like, how do I know you did it? Like, I didn't see you do it. Like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so he's like, okay, fine. I'll go again. So the next <laughs> morning, he like gets up early, climbs the peak, puts a red flag at the top. Mm. or read something and then he comes down and he said look I did it and so I mean it was revered he's like oh my god he was the first one to climb that peak and then for the longest time the name of that peak was Chinaman's Peak wow wow um, and it wasn't until like not too long ago that they changed it to his actual name Haoling yeah um but it just it shows like the way that you know his name wasn't used right mm-hmm. it's it's the history is instead it was like oh there's that Chinese worker that climbed that mountain yeah mm. Uh, versus, like, the actual um, name of the guy that did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like that, again, like you just said, like, shows, like, the erasure. Right. And, like, the lack of respect given in that circumstance, because we know, obviously, if that were, like, a white person, like, for sure it would be named after them. Like, without 100%. a question. 100%. You know? And, you know, you look at their whole Rocky Mountain range, and it's all named after white people. Mount yeah. Perrin, you know, Mount White, Mount... Like, you can go over and over, and over again. Over. Every single name is a white guy's name. Yeah. And, and even it took like, him forever to get that yeah, name. Yeah, Chinaman's people. Yeah, and it, yeah. I mean, obviously he was dead long after, like, oh, long before um, they finally name. named it his yeah. real name. Yeah. Yeah, and even thinking about that, it's like, I'm sure these peaks and these places have, like indigenous names you know what I mean like have mm-hmm. names yes that are even before totally like, that's know? a whole other can yeah. of worms yeah yeah <laughs> so to speak <laughs> on the nature can of worms <laughs> I love you get out <laughs> no but you're right yeah. and where are those names you yeah. know in national parks and who's gonna remember that? especially it's 
um, who's going to remember them? And, you know, a lot of the reason that, like, most of the mountains did have names. And I remember working when I was doing some certification to be able to be a guide out there. You know, you do learn the Indigenous names, too. But, like, the way it's translated on park maps, it's always going to be the anglicized names right. or the English names um, because guess what like they're easier to translate to people like mm -hmm. as an interpreter they're saying like okay no one's gonna remember this name you got to use Mount White instead mm -hmm. people are gonna hear that and they're gonna know so that's an interesting is, thing yeah. too it's like mm -hmm. who's the out who are the outdoors for you yeah. know yeah like, exactly and like what myths are you creating with that idea like we we use the words Toronto we use the words like all these words that have like an indigenous root, an indigenous language, yet we act as if we can't do that for so many things, but we're doing it all the time. Right. Right? Right. So it's just like... Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. Yeah. I mean, when we were up north, Lake Superior, like, a lot mm -hmm. of the names in that park are, um, are the, like, traditional Ojibwe names. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder sometimes, like, I don't know the histories of, like, who named them, if it was, like, park officials that just kind of, like, drop-picked, like, oh, yeah. like, this is a traditional area, like, these are pretty words, like, yeah. let's name mm -hmm. this, or if it was mm -hmm. actually to sort of historic names. That. And that's the thing, too, is, like, I don't know how many of those histories are recorded, like, right. who knows, like, the actual name of the hikes that we did, if, yeah. if it was actually, the lake that we canoed on was called, it's called Mijinamungshing Lake. Yeah. I don't know who named that, you yeah. know? Yeah. Why is that really a that, historical name? Yeah. Is it just tokenized as, like, a historical... For sure, mm -hmm. yeah. You know. Yeah, exactly. So we've talked about how we got the, here to, like, this uh, idea of the wilderness as such a, a white space that excludes indigeneity or um, is post-indigeneity, which mm -hmm. is not true, mm -hmm. and then and excludes, excludes uh, black and brown bodies. Mm -hmm. um, but we also kind of wanted to highlight other barriers going on in regards to the wild and camping and the outdoors, uh, one of which is that it can often feel like a space in which you already have to have knowledge to already enter, right? Totally. Um, so, yeah, I think, if Jenny, if you could speak more to that, mm -hmm. um, that barrier. Well, what's interesting about, like, what I've learned um, working as an interpreter is, mm -hmm. so... Working up north, like I, I used to work in Lake Superior, right? Um, usually the people that you get are people that are local or people that do camp. But when I worked out in Banff National Park, yeah, um, I was working at a really, really heavily trafficked tour tourist area called Moraine Lake. It's like right by Lake Louise. So you're often getting people... So these sites, like Banff is like the most popular tourist natural space in Canada. Um, For sure. Lake Louise is like the most. And Moraine Lake's like pretty much up there too. And so people see these pictures um, of these beautiful turquoise lakes and mountain ranges on Instagram and on the internet these days and like the first thing they think is like oh my god I gotta go there and get a picture like this is so gorgeous mm -hmm. and we can't deny like as a public as a human species like we see pictures of natural things that are breathtaking and it's like oh my god I want to go there you know yeah. whether or not you want to camp there or you just want to snap a picture and leave like it doesn't matter we all find that pleasing um, but at the same time um, like, it's a, it's a pretty novel thing mm -hmm. uh, to have an avenue like Instagram um, being actually what draws visitors to mm -hmm. places uh, and hopefully, that are natural, you know? And at the end of the day, um, what I learned from doing that is that, you know, first maybe people are apprehensive about taking such a long hike and the bugs and people are afraid of the bears and whatever, whatever. If you're not knowledgeable about the woods, like, these are honestly reasonable concerns to have. For sure. Um if you don't have histories in them. But 
uh, part of my job as an interpreter is to kind of relay some facts about the ecosystems. And so one of these things is the fact that in an ecosystem like a forest, everything works together, right? That's a beautiful truth. Um, you know, all of the elements are biotically um, designed to kind of work in harmony with each other. And like, isn't that a gorgeous thing? Yeah. And you can bring every single little piece and every single little fact um, into a sort of like a comprehensive um, uh, like story. Uh, and so the second you you talk to people who have no real like knowledge or history of hanging out in the outdoors mm -hmm. and you bring them into spaces of natural like of natural life um, and then they hear these histories and they hear these stories it's like really not hard to make people connect to them mm -hmm. because all of a sudden it's like oh my god like all of these elements are working together and here I am this organic living body I also and breathing out CO2 mm -hmm. and taking in oxygen from these trees and yeah. you know my waste is also waste that decomposes and feeds the soil like when we were planning for this episode you showed us that really cool Instagram page um, what is it called unlikely hikers yeah there's that yeah. one there's actually so many melanin base camp is another mm -hmm. really good one um, diversify, diversify outdoors um, I'm trying to think right now we'll link a bunch maybe at the mm -hmm. end uh, but there's like Instagram itself is a really great avenue uh, for showing people who live in cities and people who aren't used to uh, being in kind of adventure environments um, mm -hmm. that you know you can get out there. And here are some great ways of doing it. Um, even on that note, uh, you're thinking about like let's say okay, so you live in Toronto, you don't have a car, um, you have a job that's mm -hmm. like you know full -time. Monday to Friday yeah. you're working full-time and then you're like okay like okay this sounds really awesome I would love to go camping but how am I supposed to do that like I don't have a car and mm -hmm. how am I supposed to go somewhere far away if I don't there's actually like a lot of avenues just in the city um, that aren't well known but you can access uh, for instance University of Toronto Outdoors Club um, though it's like based out of University of Toronto anybody can sign up it's $20 for the year anybody can sign up anybody That's can so sign up it doesn't matter they have a website it's like utalk.ca I believe um, U-T-O-C and $20 for the year and you get your part of a monthly subscription list and um, they send out trips that take place pretty much every weekend um, and usually uh, you just have to pay for the cost of gas for whoever's driving, like just chip in a little bit and that's it. That's um, so also economical. you get uh, discounts on equipment rentals from other businesses. Uh, Utah itself has like a whole um, inventory of equipment that you can go in and rent, which is pretty sick. Like who knew that that part that's like that exists. And mm -hmm. um, there's also an avenue called Park Bus, which is a website you can go on. So let's say you just want to take a day trip to Bruce Bruce Peninsula. I mean, that's a little bit pricier, the Park Bus um, Avenue, but it is it's like a way, a way of getting, getting out of the there. city. If you yeah. plan for it and you make it a thing, you can kind of get out there in some mm -hmm. way. Um, and these do exist all over Toronto, uh, Mech even. Uh, the Mech, like Toronto store on Queen Street, um, it has like meetups. Yeah, um, I just found oh. out about that. Yeah. You can buy discount equipment from Mech because when they train a lot of their staff, like they do staff trainings and staff outings, so they'll use some of the new equipment and then it's like 60% off. Mm -hmm. And so things like that. And I think it's a. Uh, it's like a membership for Mech. Like it's a $5 you pay once and you get all these sort of perks. Yeah. that come with it. What is that's what yeah. Mech so Mech is actually it's an interesting it's a co-op. Co yeah. So 
um, you can't really buy from there unless you have, you mm -hmm. can't buy from there unless you have a membership. So it's owner-based. It's kind of like it's supposed to not be a corporate model, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it does pretty well for itself. Mech is actually an interesting company. They recently, if we're talking about diversifying the outdoors, they, you know, they recently released a statement, I think it was in 2018, uh, where the CEO um, basically made a claim saying like, hey, like we know that in the past, most of our advertising, um, most of our marketing has been showcasing white people, able-bodied people, thin people. Um, and we realized that like, that's something we've been doing, but we do want to do better. And mm -hmm. um, we just want to say that we recognize this and in the future you'll see better from us. Um, so that was kind of like a, a cool thing for them to do. Um, and they have been uh, trying, it seems, to be implementing that more into the real world. Um, there's obviously um, always like more and more and more that can be done. Um, but that is an example of a company that really does try to get people, because most of their stores are based in urban places, yeah. um, but does try to get people in some way or another, um, access to um, outdoor spaces. That's awesome. But yeah, we just wanted to thank you for listening to this episode. Thank um, you so much, Jenny. DJ JD yes, in the house. So Don't much. call me that. That was my high school name. I'm trying <laughs> to remember. My high it. school name. You don't want yeah. I thought I ditched that in Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, no Jenny is probably one of the smartest people we know. Yeah, we really want to thank oh. you for having that conversation with us. I yeah. think it was really so important. So many insights. Yeah, for Sorry. sure. I'm like a dumbass. No, she's no, not. You're she's smart. literally not. You're smart. I hate <laughs> no, this. We always have guests, and they're so humble, and I'm like, you're here for a reason. Recognize like, we think you're yourself. the coolest person ever. Like, please. For real. Thank you. Genuinely, thank you. Um, I think you, yeah. You brought just... up so many topics that I didn't even think yeah, about. So sure. many good sort of points of oh wow <laughs> yeah it's true oh wow <laughs> so yeah i think it, it will be really informative and we hope that whoever listened to this episode yeah. stayed with us and we do miss tat something. though yeah, i miss tat right now we're really excited to have her back on the next episode. which will be about hopefully we're thinking it will be about uh, the election the canadian election. i don't know why i was yeah. so scared to say fucked. that i'm excited to listen to it guys yeah we'll um, see how it goes but yeah, thank you for again. Sorry about the the delay in getting this. Yes, episode we out. were having too much fun. Yeah, but yeah, we want to thank. But you we're back for, on track. Yeah, thanks for coming, and we hope you enjoyed. Can you sing us out, Jenny? Way oh, way oh, way oh, way oh, way oh, way oh. That's the end. <laughs> <laughs>